12, as he says in the very first verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Two things you need to see at the beginning there. Therefore, it's not actually in the ESV, but that's the very first word there. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is in view of the first 11 chapters of Romans, which you've read the book of Romans, is all about our justification, our being satisfied in God by His own work in our lives. It has everything to do with God's initiative towards us. And he says, therefore, by that, by that mercy, then live this way. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. The action, the discipline that we're going to talk about today is in view of mercy. And yet, we do need to talk about discipline. Because transformation happens when we are disciplined. It happens first because of the posture of mercy that then leads necessarily to discipline. And so let's read these couple of passages together. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 9. It's in your bulletin as well. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 and following. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I find I I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. You guys have seen the movie WALL-E, right? The Disney Pixar uh, cartoon, amazing little movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it just cute, features a cute little robot uh, named Wally, which is a, stands for something, something about waste management, I think. But he's just a little robot, and he's the one that's left on the earth, and he's, he's, it's very sad, but it's very cute. He's cleaning up the world by himself. Uh, so he's, he's looking around, he's a, this waste robot, and everybody has left the earth. Uh, this is set in the future, and everybody is on this huge ship out in space, The earth has been destroyed, and there's no life left on it. And this ship that everybody is on is is run by a huge corporation, by and large. And uh, it turns out that they're an evil corporation that are manipulating people and controlling everyone's money. And uh, what's interesting about WALL-E, the movie, is that the robots in the movie are, are the most human creatures. WALL-E is this adorable little robot who is, has emotions, he, he, he loves, he shows frustration, he, he demonstrates a desire to help, um, and, and he's very human-like. And, and his, his girlfriend robot, Eve, or Eva, as he calls her, um, is also very human, showing uh, a growing humanity as the movie progresses, as she moves out of just being a robot into 
being, well, Eve at the start of a new creation, you might say. And so they together care about preserving the earth. They care about um, getting the right thing. And meanwhile, what are the actual human beings like? They're, they're fat and unaware. <laughs> That's basically the way you could describe them. They've been away from the earth for like five centuries, living on this ship, being scooted around on these little carts with screens in front of their faces, with meals provided at every turn, uh, completely addicted to technology, completely entertaining themselves to death. Their physiological structures have changed. Their bones are different now because they've been sitting for 500 years, basically entertaining themselves. Their, their outsides and their insides have, have changed based on these things. They've become basically completely unaware and completely apathetic. Their souls and their bodies are different. And, uh, you know, if that movie doesn't make you a little uncomfortable <laughs> with the realities of our present moment, then I think you need to wake up a little bit. If that doesn't kind of ring true. A bi big corporations taking over the world while we entertain ourselves to death with screens. It's a little too close to home. Screen usage is up, not surprisingly, in this pandemic. Three hours more per day. That's the stat from the Nielsen Group. Nielsen is, is this large company that runs in the background of all of our computers and takes these stats. And quarter three of last year, the average screen use for a person was uh, 10 hours and nine minutes a day. Now that's ridiculously high, right? 10 hours and nine minutes a day, average screen use time. What is the average now? 13 hours and 28 minutes. In less than six months, it has gone from 10 hours to 13 hours a day. How does that shape us? That's just one thing. That's one part of our humanity that might be challenged a little bit by this, this pandemic. There are lots of things shaping us right now. There's lots of media shaping our attention, voices speaking into us, screens telling us what to do. What are we being discipled into on a daily basis. As we said last week, if you've never had a day in Christ, how do you have a life in Christ? So if, you, if our days are filled with things like screens and uh, other voices and buying things, then we become the type of people that do that. We are disciplined into something, perhaps not the things that would be best for our humanity. And it changes our bodies and it changes our souls. And in Scripture, those two things are tied together. Just like those folks floating away in Wally, like we are changed physiologically and also in our souls by what we do. And so to come back to be beyond surviving, to move into thriving and to care for ourselves, spiritually speaking, requires us to look at that body and the soul and look at what disciplines are needed towards that intentional life. Here's what I want us to see today. In view of God's mercy, that everything that I say today, every challenge that I give to us to have a disciplined life is in view of the mercy that we need to keep ourselves in God's love first and foremost. But here's the point today. We experience transformation when we practice God-given disciplines of body and soul. We experience transformation when we practice God-given disciplines of body and soul. Traditionally speaking, 
We are body and soul. That's the simplest and shortest way that we can talk about our humanity. That's a debated point. What is a human being is a, is a psychological and philosophical question. What is it that we are? Much debate has been said. But at the end of the day, we are something external and something internal. A way to say that is body and soul. It isn't true that we are souls that happen to have bodies. And it also isn't true that we are bodies that have a little part of us that is a soul. We are body and soul. This is the way the scripture talks about us. And even though those, those things are only very infrequently separated, like in death, when we are with the Lord in the intermediate state where we are somewhat separated from our bodies, that's not the ultimate picture of redemption. It isn't the case when we die and we're separated from our bodies that that is fulfillment of redemption. Just like when Christ left his body or in Sheol, in the, in the dead place, in the grave, that wasn't ultimate redemption, that he died for us. The ultimate redemption was that he was resurrected, that he got his body back, that his body was healed, and that he's still in this body today. So our ultimate redemption is not the separation of our souls into somewhere with God. It is a separation of our souls, but then the ultimate redemption is the resurrection of the dead, then the life everlasting. And so we are body and soul. How do we care for body and soul? How do we have discipline towards these things that we are? First, body. It is interesting to me that Paul talks about the body in these passages, and that's what, how he summarizes who he is. He says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. What does he mean that he disciplines his body? What is he referring to there? He says it also in the other passage. By the mercy of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. What does he mean? He means a few things, at least. First, he means this, that disciplining your body means that you have the goal of self-control in your life. Verse 26, he says, I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's using a, an athletic metaphor for the body. He's saying, in a sense, my spiritual growth is like a growth towards, like an athlete is when he is running. It's self-control. It's getting up and exercising. It's not insignificant that that is his model, that he is encouraging the self-control like an athlete does. It also means this, as we see in Romans 12, that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. That is what we do to discipline our bodies. Now what does that mean? In verse 1 of Romans 12 it says this, By the mercies of God present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing or acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is he talking about with being a living sacrifice? This is talking about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where sacrifices were offered to God. So what does he mean here? Well, it's very important that we understand what he means is not a sin offering. There are multiple different kinds of offerings in the Old Testament. 
Um, two of the main categories are a sin offering and a whole burnt offering. So a sin offering was offered on behalf of the people to atone for sins. That's not the sacrifice that he has in view here. Paul is not saying, in other words, that what you need to do is to live in your body in such a way so that you atone for your sin. He's not saying flagellate yourself, beat yourself into submission so that you can um, have redemption because you can beat your body and God will recognize your penance and then he will accept you. That would be a sin offering. That's not the kind of offering that he is referring to here. Rather, he is referring to the whole burnt offering. What is that? The whole burnt offering was the offering of the spotless lamb. The offering of the perfect and most valuable piece of your property. In the Old Testament, people would give up the perfect lamb to show that to God, their whole life was available to him. You can have the most valuable thing that I have. And in so saying, you can have all of me. You can have who I am. I will be obedient to you when it hurts, financially, emotionally, because often the spotless lamb was part of the family. You talk, there's Old Testament passages about how this was almost like the pet of the family that was offered up as the whole burnt offering to God. It is an offering of the self, the whole self. It is saying, I give the right of my body. When you offer as a living sacrifice, I give the right of my body to you, God, for your purposes. And so this is something that we need to say that's controversial. God has the right to our bodies. What we do in the flesh, as Paul says in other places, do not offer up your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness. His, his perspective on our bodies is what we should have, not our own. So it's very controversial to say, but it is true. Scripturally speaking, your body is not your own. It is your own in a sense that it's your responsibility, but it's not your own in the sense of actual ownership. As we say in the Heidelberg Catechism, when we cite that, I belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am not my own. I belong with body and soul to Him. It means we don't have ultimate rights of what happens in our body. We don't have the right to, to have a sexuality outside of God's parameters. We don't have a right to use our mouths to say whatever we want to say just because we want to say it. Because that's part of our bodies. That's an instrument for righteousness. We don't have a right to hurt our bodies. Ours or anyone else's. Either actively or through neglect. Because we are living sacrifices. We've been offered to God. Even just think about that phrase. Living sacrifice. Slow down enough to see what that, that is. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? A living sacrifice? Aren't those things opposites? Isn't the whole point of a sacrifice that it dies? Yes. Because this life that we're being invited into is a life of dying to self. As Paul says elsewhere. You get to live. You get to live in Him while dying to other things. You are a living sacrifice. And through 
dying to self, you actually gain what is true life. You live. So, disciplining the body means that we do self-discipline. Saying no to our passions. It means also that we're a living sacrifice, offering our bodies to God to, to do what He wants us to do in the flesh. Thirdly, it means this, that we submit to our creatureliness. We submit to our creatureliness. We are His creation. And by definition, a creature has limitations beyond what the Creator has. You are a creature. You live with needs and limitations. What are the things that we would say about God? God's attributes. That's the old way of talking about who God is. What are the attributes of God? What, is, what do we attribute to Him? The big three that everybody always talks about are that He is omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. That He is omniscient. That He knows all things. That He's omnipotent. That means He can do anything. Which part of those parts of God's character do we share in? None of them. None of them. They are what we call incommunicable. They don't communicate to us. God is in His own category. But some of us think that we really want to try to be everywhere at once, don't we? Some of us think that we really beat ourselves up when we don't know something. When we're not able to control, like if we were omnipotent, every aspect of our life, it really bothers us that, that, we, that we have these limitations. But it shouldn't. It actually should be a place of submission to Him. Zach S. Wine uh, has a book called The Imperfect Pastor, which is written towards pastors, but really, it's an amazing book for anyone to read. And he talks about this. He talks about, look, all of us, we, we feel like we need to be everywhere at once, know everything at once, and control everything at once. And, and we feel like we should kind of repent when we're not able to do that. Like, oh, I should have known that. Uh, I, should have, I should have been able to, to control that. And we feel like we should repent for those things. But he says no. Don't repent of those things. Repent of your desire for them. Repent of your desire to be God. Submit to your creatureliness. We are in the flesh. We are body. We do not have everything at once. There are limitations. Physiological limitations. Cultural limitations. How do we submit to our creatureliness? We submit to things like sleep which Scripture tells us is an act of submission to God and actually something that He blesses us with. You can go to sleep. I'll stay awake, God says in the Psalms. I'll guard you while you sleep. Sleep. Activity. Eating well. Emotional health. Making sure that we're staying in check with the people that are around us and not overly reactive in our, our internal responses to things. Friendship. These are things that God has created us for. There are a couple of errors that we can fall into when it comes to the body as a place of spiritual discipline. One would be to discount the body, and the second would be to elevate the body. To discount the body was maybe the error that the church committed for many centuries, I think, 
which is this idea that we are, our bodies don't really matter, that, uh, that we are basically souls, and that to, to get a Greek idea of the body would be that it just is a holding place for our souls. And so what you do in the body doesn't matter that much, um, and if you don't take care of your body, that's okay, because your soul is secure. That's an error. That's not the way that the scriptures talk about the body. We are a body. However, I don't think that error is committed nearly as much as the second error in our current moment, where we elevate the body. We overly elevate it. The body has become a new source of spirituality, where exercise gurus are like spiritual sages, and the right combination of diet and exercise becomes the, way to, the only way to a good life. Is that the way the scriptures talk about the body? Or exercise? Or diet? It's not. 1 Timothy 4.8 For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says, our, our of course, our physical bodies have value, and, and training in that has value. But he says godliness is of greater value because it is both now and for the life to come. And so in all of these ways, we discipline the body because we are body. We learn to control ourselves. We learn to submit to our creatureliness. And we offer up as living sacrifices, our lives to God to be used for His purposes. But we're also soul. Soul is one word, probably the, the broadest word we could use to contain this idea of the inner person. But the scriptures talk about it in lots of different ways. Here in, in Romans 12, he talks about the mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your mind. That's one way it's talked about. In Mark chapter 12, we're told all the different aspects of humanity. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't believe that those four things are uh, four different parts of us that need to be strengthened. I think that those are perspectives on, on who a person is. And so we, the, the heart is the whole person as it relates to the seat of emotions and and, and the soul, or the Greek word psyche, is the whole person as it relates to us being a living, breathing creature. And the mind is the, is the whole person as it relates to us being reasoning um, people. What did I miss? Strength. Our strength is the whole person as it relates to an effort or will. And so that makes sense of the scriptural passages where it seems like in Romans 12... It, it says the internal person is referred to as either the mind or in other places as a soul or to say in the heart, the heart is, is desperately wicked above all things or the heart um, is, is the whole person. They're all the whole person. We might summarize it by just saying soul, the inner person. It's perspectives on the inner life. Every way that you think of yourself, in other words, is to be submitted to God. So, we are body and soul. How do we grow? How do we become disciplined in body and soul? And we need to go to what the main challenge is here in Romans chapter 12. 
he says this to us. Two movements. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed, be transformed. That's always, in Scripture, the movement of growth. It's negative and it's positive. It's moving away from something and into something else. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. It's always a moving away from and a moving toward. Never just one or the other. It's not just a slap on the wrist. Don't do that. But it is don't do that. But it's also pursue this. Always. So we need to do both of those things in the body and the soul. Do not be conformed, he says. What does it mean to be conformed? To the world. Dr. Daniel Aiken, uh, is a, he's the president of Southwestern Seminary, um, uh, Southeastern Seminary, sorry. He, he taught um, this, uh, this course on how Babylon, that's the place where Israel went into exile, was a place of conformity. How they tried to conform Israel to themselves when they were in exile. And he says they did four things. First, Isolation. They, grew, they took a group of Israelites, the best and the brightest. Daniel, if you've read that book, was among them. And they isolated them from the rest of Israel. Secondly, indoctrination. They made them experts in Babylonian language, culture, arts. Third, assimilation. They showed them the delicacies and the privileges of being a Babylonian, which was equivalent to just being the best in the world at the moment. And then confusion. They changed their names from Israelite-sounding names to Babylonian names, and they began to plant seeds of dissent among them about how they were different from the rest of Israel. That strategy still works. How are we, not, how are we conformed to the world? We're conformed when we're isolated. When we don't interact with one another, when we flee from fellowship with one another, that's the place where conformity begins to happen. Indoctrination. When we begin to form our thoughts and our patterns are, are shaped by things other than our, our life together, other than the scriptures. When we feel like righteous about the things that happen on social media, and it's like, I don't know that I would have said that 10 years ago, but now I just know that that is the right thing to say or do because we've been shaped by that. Assimilation. Do I enjoy every single thing that the rest of the world enjoys? Is there any difference between my entertainment and my discerning of things from anyone else? Do I find the same things inspiring, the same things funny? Confusion. Confusion. Do I now find myself turning on my own Christian friends? Really being kind of embarrassed by my faith separating myself from an identity of Christ, the identity that Christ has placed on me? Do I find myself confused about things that I and most of the rest of the world and most of the rest of the history of the church weren't confused about? Things about sexuality, things about gender, things about the Bible's trustworthiness. Do I find myself confused on those points, whereas before I wasn't? Do not be conformed passage says. That's the negative. But as I said, Christianity is never just a slap on the wrist and say, don't be like that. It's actually 
that we would be transformed as well by the renewing of the mind. How does that happen? It happens through discipline. Posture of mercy that leads to a life of discipline is transformation. How do we do that? What our tradition has talked about is the means of grace. There are means of grace for us. They are the way that we experience the grace of God. The three that are mentioned that are especially important in our catechism are this. The means of grace, especially the word, sacrament, and prayer. The word, sacrament, and prayer. And all of that in that part of our confession is surrounded by in the context of the church. So I would add their fellowship. We are called into these disciplines to put it into four different categories for us. It's this. It's practices of the word, practices of prayer, practices of presence, and practices of fellowship. Practices of the word are things like reading the Bible, uh, listening to the scriptures, memorizing, meditating. Practices of prayer are free prayer like we most often do, but also set prayers like are going to be in that devotional that we got for you prayers of other people, breathing prayers, centering prayers, practices of presence are things like we experience the presence of God at the table today, and we go out throughout the week and we experience God's presence through things like silence and contemplation of him, solitude, retreat, practices of fellowship. We come out of those places of silence and retreat into community church gatherings, small groups, accountability. These are the practices that transform us, that help us not be conformed, but yet be transformed. So that feels like a lot. I just mentioned a lot of different practices there. That feels like a lot to do. How do we practically apply this to us in a way that is doable and straightforward? I want to just mention, as we, as we close today, three things that will help us to be able to do these practices with intentionality. And the first one you'll be familiar with if you came to our Rule of Life seminar, uh, which was last December. It feels like it was like three years ago, but it was just last December. Uh, we had a seminar on how you build a life, uh, an intentional life with God. It's the Rule of Life. And the first rule is... I say rule. It's not a rule from the scriptures. I'm saying it's a helpful thing that will help you have an intentional life with God. And I guarantee you that if you practice this rule, then you will have a more intentional life with God. Guarantee it. Um, And it doesn't have to do with waking up at a certain time or anything like that. Here's the rule. Scripture before screen. Scripture before screen. Screen is what rules most of our lives now. We wake up with screen, we fall asleep holding a screen, most of us. Shaping us, body and soul, into something else other than the humanity that God has for us. Not evil, of course, in and of itself. I'm talking about how much we use it and are shaped by it. We don't have trouble going to screens, do we? Nobody ever says, oh, I really wanted to spend 15 minutes on a screen today, but I just didn't have time. Why? Because screens already contain our desire. We're already drawn to them. We already love them. We're already addicted to them. And so we don't have any trouble returning to them. 
And what we need is to train ourselves, as Paul says, I beat my body. I don't box as one who beats the air. I train myself as an athlete. We need to train ourselves to love the Scriptures and the presence of God. And so, as a matter of discipline, Scripture before screen. Let that set the tone of the day. Let that be the way that we end the day rather than with the screen. In fact, we need a whole new approach to our digital life. I do believe that our digital life and the, the amount that we spend on that is the new battleground for our discipleship and our intentional life with God. I just believe that is true based on how much we are engaging with it. We look at screens first thing and last thing, and they shape a lot. I can pretty much guarantee what you look at one of these things as a first thing or a last thing to your day. Some of us look at social media as a way of saying, how well am I doing around other people? Some of us look at bank accounts or investment accounts before we fall asleep or the first thing when we wake up. How secure am I? Some of us look at the news when we wake up and when we fall asleep. How anxious should I be? What do I need to know about so that I can act rightly in the world? Some of us look at YouTube or sports stats or any number of things. How can I feel a little better knowing something, seeing something, being entertained, eking out a little more joy out of whatever it is that we're drawn to? The problem is that those things don't actually provide what you want them to provide. They don't actually make you more informed, oftentimes, or more secure, or better off as compared to other people. They usually take more than they give. And so, as a matter of discipline, we could say scripture before screen. I'm going to let this worldview shape the other ones, the other ones are going to fall in the line with everything else that I'm reading, experiencing. When I say scripture, I don't mean necessarily even a Bible reading. I mean one of those practices. That's the first thing. Second, if you're looking for some direction, we're going to help in a couple of different ways. The first one is to bring every aspect of church into your heart and your home. If you're looking for what are the types of things we're talking about, look no further than what's in this order of service. This is not a bunch of random things thrown together. These are the training ground. This is why we come in and do the same things every week, so that we believe the gospel, so that we see it laid out, so that we experience God's grace again, so that we hear that you are forgiven every single week. These are the kinds of things that we need in our hearts and our homes. Repentance. Call to worship. What does that mean? It means attention. Your life is, is God's. things we need most in our hearts and our homes are the same things that we do here. Repentance, singing, word, table, fellowship. And then, third, as a matter of helping with this, I would encourage everyone to start small and grow the desires from there. And that's why we put this together for you. To start small. This can be done in 15 minutes a day. And this is an encouragement to us to do all of these things. Don't just dive into this every morning. Spend a few minutes in the presence of God first. 
Become aware of his presence. That's the practice of presence. Be silent before him. Then, engage in the word. Read the short passage from the Gospel of John. Grow in your understanding of the passage through what we've written here. Pray. Practice of prayer. There is a prayer already written for you. You don't have to make up the words. You can add to it. It can get the, the engine rolling. Or if you're just starting out, you can just read this. Journaling continues the practice of prayer as you write down how you're experiencing God and the world and offer them up as a prayer. In the practice of fellowship, let's all do this together. Let's talk about it. I'm going to be, uh, for the next three days, that's the plan anyway, releasing a video first thing in the morning. I want to encourage you to follow along with me. I'm going to do the first three days on video, camera, uh, so that you can just do it with me. Let's just do it together. 15 minutes to engage in this as a matter of discipline. When it starts small. Like everything that is intentional, everything that is good, it starts small and our desires grow from there. And when we do that over and over again, we, we lead lives that are pleasing to God. That's what it says twice in Romans 12. That word pleasing or acceptable as it's translated here. We have a life that is pleasing to God. Now I know that triggers some of us. as We think, well God is this great arms crossed in the sky saying like, why don't you please me more? That's not at all the picture that scripture gives us. Therefore, by the mercies of God, by everything that he has done, Live a life that is pleasing to Him. He is a good Father that wants good things for you. I heard it put this way once, that, that we imagine a father and a son, and they, they're training for a baseball game. The father is a good father, and he spends hours with his son in the backyard, working on technique or his batting, telling him all the things he needs to do with his hip and his eyesight and his hands, and he works with him. And then the day of the game comes, and now the pressure is on, and the sun is up there, and it's, it's a full count, and the pressure is on. As the father wa- watches the son, what's going on inside of each of them? The father is pleased with the son. The father wants him to hit it out of the park. But what if the boy strikes out? If he strikes out, is the father's love diminished? This is a good father, remember? His love is not diminished. He still loves his son. There's either going to be an opportunity for joy and celebration, or there's going to be an opportunity for comfort. But both of those things are good. What's going on in the son? He wants to hit it out of the park. He wants it badly. He doesn't believe, though, that if he doesn't, that he'll have to leave home, or that his father won't spend more time with him. But he does want to please the father. God's love for us does not depend on our performance or our discipline, or our action in the moment, or our ability to pull ourselves together. That's not what it depends on. It's mercy from the start to finish. But don't you want to please him? Don't you want to live a life that is pleasing? to our Father who has done all of this for us. So keep yourself in the love and the mercy of God, but in view of that, let's be disciplined in our bodies and practice this one so that we can 
please the Father. Let's pray.